Ladies and gentlemen, Jibril Cisses and Sunday Elises, welcome to Worldie. Well, gentlemen, time makes fool of us all and this World Cup has made fools of us as we sit here in our respective homes because uh, we, we can't get together quick enough to uh, record this podcast uh, to reflect over England's exit from World Cup 2018. Shiz, what do, what do you think? It was, at the time, when, when the final whistle went, massively, massively disappointing. <coughs> I find it really hard to sort of be reflective speak, straight away. You know, you know, really good tournament and, and all the positives. I, I struggle with that. So massively, massively gutted. Not necessarily the manner we went out. I, I, I kind of thought during the game it was slipping away from us anyway after the first half. Um, but more than that, it was kind of, it, it was the end of just an awesome month of football and great moments and you know friendships develop and you know everything around it was just so good very reminiscent of london 2012 olympics as well mm, although i didn't yeah. feel the downer then because there obviously wasn't a big exit as such it was just the event came to an end so pretty pretty down um that that sort of perked up this morning and then you can sort of focus a bit on on all the good stuff, can't you? But yeah, disappointing. Andy, what were your initial feelings straight after them? Because I think we'll get into some of the overall like good stuff. But what do you, what do you feel like right after? I mean, I, I was I I'm similar to, to Shuri. I I lots of chat on social media and stuff about about the kind of the the oh well, never mind guys. You know, we've had a great. It's been a wonderful journey and all of that stuff. Um, I'm I'm not sure. I I'm I'm completely unable to process that. Even though I went into that game thinking, do you know what? doesn't really matter what happens in this game we've had an absolutely amazing tournament and all of the positive stuff that Shuri was talking about um so so if we lose fine we lose that's great but immediately afterwards none of that rational thinking was going through my brain I was all I I was just I was heartbroken mostly I'll be honest with you I was heartbroken for them Mm. like just watching those guys who have given us such a wonderful like two and a half three weeks all of them seeing them all crestfallen seeing Gareth Southgate kind of like you know quite emotionally he was you know easy you know by his standards I think seeing you know seeing all of that was was it was just really hard to process. I was sim- I was similar when I first watched Oxford lose a, a Johnson's Paint Trophy final at Wembley. Everybody was like, "Oh well, don't matter. It's only JPT. Who gives a crap?" But I was watching all of the Oxford players in tears on the big <laughs> yeah. screen. I'm like, it matters to them. Yeah, like, definitely. And, and so it really, and so all of that, it really mattered to me. And it, 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 I was genuinely heartbroken. Like. Um, and while I had all the positive stuff in my head at the same time, I couldn't I couldn't get past that kind of overwhelming feeling of sadness that was like in my you, gut, you know what you know? I had a I had a sort of sort of very strangely uh, cathartic experience watching that match because as I was watching it, I kind of went through all the stages of grief, but during the match. Because I we had the wonderful start to the game with Trippier scoring that free kick and it was like, you know, what was going on? And we were all chanting easy, easy, you know, and it was everyone was getting everyone was thinking, fuck, this might actually happen. This is happening. It's not it might happen, it is happening right now. And then as the game went on, it became very clear after we failed to take advantage of the point in the match where we were the dominant force that the 
the, the match was slipping away, as, as you said, and we we reached that point. And when Perisic scored, I knew we were going to lose. The, sec- the second Perisic scored the equaliser, I knew it was over. And I think I began my griefing process at that point because I was angry at that point. And I was gutted. So, and I there thought, was still like half an shame. hour to go when he scored, wasn't there? But yeah. you, the players, they were, they were already sort of running out of steam a bit, weren't they? Even before then, Roy, Roy Keane you used a bit of terminology afterwards that, that rang quite true. He said, um, Croatia are far more streetwise than we were. Yeah. And that that's not kind of cheating. It's just, it's, it's the taking the, the extra bit of time now and again. It's it's making sure that, that you get the free kicks where, where 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 there's contact. You know, all that stuff that's a bit nonsensical, but it's not cheating. They're, they were really good at that. And as soon as they equalised, it started. And clearly, as soon as they went ahead, it, they were like on lockdown. And there was almost no football played after their second goal went in. Yes. It was just yeah. delaying and delaying and delaying. And as, But as you say, it, 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 us, us going out was kind of from when the equaliser went in, it was sort of set up for that to happen. So I, I, I agree with you, actually. It was sort of... Yeah, it was probably like was a good a, hour of, of yeah. building up to the disappointment. Yeah, exactly. It wasn't like it happened all of a sudden. There was there was a whole hour there to, to get used to it. And I totally come to terms with it. And by the end I was just kind of happy, actually, in a sort of strange in a strange way, because I knew that that we'd done something really special and that maybe, you know, as much as as much as my like lizard brain was was thinking, you know, well, we could have gone all the way, we could have gone all the way. I realised how ridiculous it was to really be thinking like that because in hindsight you know it was absolutely it was absolutely amazing effort just to get just to get where we were so it's a little you you know i think i I, what I really wanted was for for the following day for the media not to come out and destroy the team and, and talk about oh we had an easy route to the final blah 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 i think you've got to take these things uh yeah in the yeah. context they come i think i i kind of i my, my my biggest takeaway from it was was um, in terms of rationalising it in my head when I was on my way back because I, I watched it up at the uh, National Football Museum in Manchester, um, and on the way taxi back to the hotel, I was kind of processing all of this stuff in my head to try and come to terms with it. And my in my rationale was this: it was the fact that we we basically had. I think a really young, inexperienced team that very few people expected to get to the quarterfinals, or if they did, they didn't expect them to get past the quarterfinals. Um, that this side had basically, they had like basically come up to, to the, the limits of what they could really achieve. They 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 had already overachieved, overachieved. They, they they took it to every single step they possibly could, and they couldn't take it a step further. Partly due to their inexperience, their youth, and also just limits of their ability, because it's still you know it's it's it's, it's not a world class team, is it, by any stretch of the imagination? Indeed. So I think I think they had already they had already overstretched what they could realistically have achieved anyway, um, and so I think anything beyond that was 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 unrealistic expectation from us but it wasn't even expectation for me it's just that cruelest <laughs> of fucking things which is what makes football wonderful yeah uh, but also makes it such a cruel mistress as well and that's hope yeah. this is that hope because i have seen utterly stupid and ridiculous things happen in football games so even when we'd gone like jesus christ like like Belgium coming back from two goals down to win 3-2 with like 20-odd minutes left or whatever. You know, it, stuff like that happens at football. Admittedly, they were the better side in that team, but still, it, it's crazy shit happens. And so, like a twatty, stupid, like self-defeating romantic I am, I kept that little grain of hope inside me. <laughs> and that was ultimately what ended up killing me like emotionally by the end of it, you know? 
No, no. One of my biggest reflections the day after was just mulling over how had 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 we not lost the way we did to Croatia, how else how else we may have exited the tournament. You know, I'm just thinking if if we had equalised really late in extra time against Croatia, but then lost to them on penalties. I mean, that would have been ten times worse. Or or even had we got through that game, I'd, I I don't think we would have got anywhere near beating France. And again, losing in the final, I think would have been a lot worse. So again, in, you know, in hindsight. The way we went out, you know, it wasn't, there was no controversy. They weren't, Croatia weren't a bunch of bastards. It was just, no. as it panned out, they were better over two hours of football. Yeah, it was a bit like, I mean, I was very pissed off when we lost in the quarterfinal to Brazil in 2002. But but again, at the end of that, I did kind of think to myself, they were better than us, weren't they? They were better than us. And, and you know, we, we were uh, going to lose that game. I'll and, be honest with you, though, I don't I don't take comfort from that, like that they were a better team than us and therefore it was OK that we went. I don't I don't take much comfort out of that. I take more comfort in the, from the fact that the, the positive way you've gone about a tournament tournament or otherwise, you know, I I, I because I've, I've seen I've seen less deserving teams come up against my teams and still do one over on me. So oh, yeah, that's I'm football. quite happy that, to be a less deserving that, team. And win, you know? That's football, isn't it? But I think it is a good rationale because it saves you having to dissect and put, find blame in your own team where it's maybe not necessary, you know? It's funny yeah, yeah. what your mind goes through, isn't it? You, you, you're looking for that. Everybody's looking to sort of rationalise and come up with a a solid reason why this happened that you can accept and then move on from it. It's very strange because it's, it's only football, but you have to sort of grieve in your own way. Don't you? <laughs> Definitely. Because, and it, but it's always, it's always the way with anything where you're, you're really, really heavily invested in it, but you have zero control because what are you going to do? You yes, know, yeah. you've got no control over it. It's just going to happen. And I think that's why the wave of emotion is so powerful for football, because it's one, it, the events are something you can't control. You just have to accept it. And in so many things in life, you can do something about it. Right. But I think that's why you get so many dickheads that go like jumping on top of buses or whatever it is, because they don't know what to do. They don't know how to, <laughs> they don't know how to express their feelings properly. So they just go mental and like throw a bin into the front of a Woolworths or whatever. I, I also think, I mean, imagine in 20, probably 2010, when towards the end of most of our golden generation of players' careers, had we lost in a semi-final then, it would have just felt like that's it, that's the end. You know, we're never going to do anything again. Whereas this is very much like the start of something. So I think a lot of people have, just looking very positively at the next two, four, six years. Yeah, exactly. When I when when I when I was going through my grieving process in the last hour of the Croatia game, I I was already like formulating like my my general feelings about it, and I wrote it in a massive long tweet, which hopefully people will have will have read on the Worldy Pod uh, Twitter account. And it basically said that you don't you you don't go from being like an average team twenty in the World Cup out of nowhere. You, you you win the World Cup by going deep in all of the tournaments that you don't win. And so it feels like we've started on that journey, not the journey of winning the World Cup out of the blue, but the journey of going deep into competitions and having a chance of winning. And that's pretty cool, you know? It is. I mean, it, what we've done, and we, we've, we've done it the right way as well because, because they've set up a new system. We were talking about this in the last podcast, about it just feels like a completely different England 
team set up organization whatever than it or than it has done before and so it to, to to feel like we're doing all of that stuff properly it, it actually do you know what weirdly what's going on at the moment with gareth southgate in the whole england setup reminds me an awful lot of dave brailsford when he picked up the english sorry gb team gb cycling back in back in the day when he did all of the you know the science of marginal gains and stuff like Absolutely. that it's, it looks like uh organizationally like perfectly run properly executed so they're doing it all really really well on the ground floor but what's amazing about this england football team as well and this is entirely because of the wonderful like humanity of of of, of strong muffin gareth southgate yeah. is that they're doing it with absolutely the right fucking attitude and that is that is absolutely something you can get behind and something you can be feel proud of you know and and, yeah. and that's that for me is what's wonderful about this. Even if this side, over the next 10 years or how long this development takes, even if they don't end up winning anything, as long as we're acquitting ourselves properly and we're, we're going out there and giving it a really good go and overstepping the bounds of what our ability should really naturally take us to, then I'll be ultimately I'll be happy. Yeah, absolutely. They, they, they've made the step of connecting the people to the team again. Yeah. And that was what was missing for so long with the golden generation. They were so special and they were so, you know, full of celebrity that they didn't feel in any way connected to us. No, and in that generation, it felt like they didn't actually feel that connected to playing for the country. It was all just a sort of sideshow for their celebrity status. Mm. Um, what what I, I was, again, thinking about the sort of six to ten year plan, um, it's all part of the stupid grieving again. But I found myself getting quite upset um, thinking of players, the likes, you know, Ashley Young's, the, the one who yeah. sprang to mind instantly. You know, he's 32. And he won't be involved in these next tournaments. Yeah, he's played a really big part in what's happened this summer. So there'll yeah. be, I think, there'll be other players like that who have been so important to getting this thing started that we probably won't see for England. It yet. is surprising you, when you, you look with, at those... with, with Ashley Young as well. You could tell when they that long prolonged bit where they were all just stood there, like in front, looking completely lost and applauding the, the amazing England fans who were over there. Apart from only the dickheads singing things that they shouldn't have been, um, but they were all there, like uh, clapping away. And and you could just see in Ashley Young's eyes that that was his last opportunity. Oh, you know, you know what? As well. Was, I've decided that, uh, talking of Ashley Young's eyes, that's what reminded me of it, I've decided that he does look like a sort of cartoon frog. <laughs> He's got very wide that, that sort of... That makes me feel less sorry for him. Yeah, <laughs> off-centred bug eyes. It's quite an interesting setup he's got going on. The other thing... Is odd, him, him in England's an odd one, isn't it? Because it's, it's not like he's had a 10-year England career that's come to an end. He, he was largely left out prior to this latest round of qualifiers and tournament, actually. So, on one hand, he's actually probably just really thankful that he's been a part of yeah. it at all i mean he's been a funny player hasn't he because he's he he was traditionally a very attacking left or right sided sort of inside forward type of player and then he's whatever team he's played for he's just sort of said i'll take up any role you want and as we know historically that's always a killer for your international career yes it's really weird as well because I I always used to hate him. Like yeah. I mean, like part of that was because he, you know, he was one of the first kind of English players to take up that kind of 
bollocks to it. I'm just going to start diving left, right and centre thing that, you know, that, that we'd always hoped wasn't going to make its way into the English game. But he was like the original proponent of that from an English perspective. Um, yeah, at the same time. Now, I don't think he's had great games in every game that we've played this this tournament, but there has definitely been a, a level-headedness. Like in that Columbia game, I think his experience and his level-headedness massively, massively helped us out. He took the sting out of the game at important part, at important times by you know writhing around on the floor in agony yeah. or whatever. Um, and so little bits of that, and, and like so, I've 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 warmed to him so much throughout this tournament, and I never thought that was going to be possible. I just always assumed he was going to be ultimately be one of those players I just hated. But like, do you know what? I really like him. He's, he's and, and also, also all the goals we score from set pieces, it was largely either him or Trippier yeah. who took the set yeah, piece. That's right. You know, yeah. The big centre backs got the headlines because they they're the ones scoring, but it was. Yeah, the quality of the delivery from those guys as well. I, I think that 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 point, Andy, you make that applies to a lot of players. You know, I, I went into this tournament, Henderson as an example. I didn't rate him at all, and he he's come out in my eyes as, as one of the most vital players for England now. And I, I'm I'll have, I think the kind of player I'll probably have a soft spot for domestically. I think you know, look out for how they're getting on. And I sort of hope that the relationships the squad have formed with each other. It gets carried forward into the domestic game a bit as well because you you kind of hope these these friendships should last for life now with what what they've all been through and what you want as well is you want you want these these guys now to go back and look forward to linking up to, with England again because it, it's only it's only two to the the Premier League season that the first um the first round of international fixtures and probably the first round of Euro qualifiers start happening so they. They they won't have long to, to to kind of wait yet yet you want them to look forward to it and not to go oh bloody hell we've got international duty again because so many of the old yeah. guard used to resent playing for England you, you hope that the now and you expect they probably will they're going to look forward to it they're going to be excited yeah. about yeah. linking up with England and with Gareth and in the, the, the whole coaching crew and stuff because of the positive experience they've had and also any other players who might have been on the fringe of this who's going to start coming in over the next year or two years. Are going to be like I saw, I watched all of that. I'd have loved to have been part of that during the World Cup, and now I'm, I've been called up, and I'm now really excited to be a part of that. Yeah, and, they don't and, have to look back to a period of time that was even maybe before they were born to find any kind of success and interest in the in the international side. They can pick on something that happened just last year. That's going to have a mm. big effect on players, I'm sure. It is. It's, it's, I, I think. I think. I think the future looks. The biggest problems we are going to have now is twofold. It's one, it's um, it's Gareth Southgate having to make sure that he keeps those guys on an even keel, keeps their feet on the ground. And I don't doubt he's got the ability to do that, but keeps them grounded and do, I mean, because it's going to, because the press are going to go fucking mental now and they're going to, Looking out that we're going to win the next the European yeah, Championship. It's, it's a gimme. We 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 you know anything other than winning it is is a failure after this wonderful World Cup and, and all of that. So keeping those guys grounded is going to be massively important. But also the expectation of the supporters and in, in, in the press and all of that that is going to be so difficult to manage. Don't get me wrong. I absolutely have 100% faith in Gareth Southgate that he can do that in a measured and calm and, 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 and good way. But also it's the expectation of the nation where everybody's suddenly excited about England again. So all of those things make for a very, very, very difficult environment to run a football team in. I'll be interested to see what Southgate does from here on. Cause it, even, you know, this week, 
when we're in a World Cup semi-final, he, he kept stressing the point. You know, I'm really new to this. I'm not the finished article. I'm still learning my trade. Yeah. Um. So so he's potentially got a really long way to go, and a, you know a lot more to add to that setup as well. It's not it's not kind of this is it and this is what it's going to be like. It it, it should develop further as he develops as a manager will, as well. Will the FA, do you think, commit to a long-term career for Southgate? Like, you know, look at the, they Span- should. Look at the Spanish they should. FA. They really should, you know, 10 years or more. Yeah. I, I don't know that they will. Because you could just imagine that if we have a bad campaign or we have, you know, a bad qualifying run or something, that we could revert to type and, and Southgate's gone and we're back to square one again. I, you know, it would it'd be fantastic just to accept the situation we're in and say maybe yeah. we will still struggle, but, you know, we want to we wanna go long with, with this setup. Well, and they, I, they, they, they definitely see, um, they definitely see South, right? And like they, they, they have helped build, build a setup around him. And like, regardless of what happened in the timing of what happened with Allardyce, I have no doubt in my mind whatsoever, this was their long-term game. Like so Allardyce was going to be a short thing. They'd probably have him for a couple of years before everybody got bored of the defensive and cloggy football. And, and they were going to bring Gareth Southgate up. This was their long-term plan. I think they had to bring it in sooner than they wanted to because of the whole Sam Allardyce thing. But they said once they got a po- he was appointed, and once we were starting, once we'd qualified for for these World Cups, they said it does not matter one jot what happens in the World Cup. Gareth Southgate will be the manager for the next two tournaments after this. So, so, so they have it in their head. This is a long, this is a long game that they're playing. Um, and in woe, woe betide, I do this, but uh, I will, I will give absolute full credit to the FA, the way they have built this whole system up to, to give him a platform to do what he's doing um, because they've got it so badly fucking wrong through our, not helped by the press admittedly, but they've got it so badly wrong through the, through the, the entire course of my entire life that it's, it's really good to see, see a proper platform being given for a decent young manager. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I there was one interesting thing that happened, uh, after the semi-final was uh, Luka Modric uh, sticking it to the British press. And I thought, isn't it incredible that even at a time when the British press are still trying to like, you know, that on the surface they're, they're backing Southgate and this new thing, but they still managed to fucking ruin it for us <laughs> yeah, that, by winding up our opposition to the point they play really, really well. <laughs> It is in their DNA, isn't it? The press—they can't help it. It doesn't matter what they do, even when they're trying to be benevolent, they yeah. fuck things up for England. I mean, but Jesus at the same Christ. at the same time, I mean, actually, I listened back a couple of times to what Modric said, and he he was actually really just talking about the fact that everybody thought that Croatia would be tired. Yeah, yes, and his point yeah. was like, no, you've underestimated us. Just because we played a couple of like 120 minute games doesn't mean we're going to be tired. We've got more in our locker than that. So I think a lot of that has been spun out of kind of context a little bit, but it's been, he's been painted out now to be this kind of like ungracious kind of bad guy. But actually he was, he was asked a direct question as well by fucking Gabriel Clark. He always tries to be, <laughs> he always tries to stick a little kind of contentious thing in because he's a, twat yeah. um but but nevertheless i think I, I don't i don't think luka modric was anything more than 
everybody thought we were going to be tired for this game, but hey, look at us. We weren't tired. We had loads to give. So, um, yeah, so I, 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 I think the, I think how much impact that had has ultimately been overstated, but, but nevertheless, um, <laughs> fuck the press. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know who is tired? That's me. So we're going to take a little quick break and then we're going to come back and talk a little bit about the other semi-final uh, with Belgium versus France. Kick him up and down the training pitch. It's good to hear Roy back on the pod there. Um, he, what is it with what is it with Roy? He looks so angry and upset with everything. Like when, know, whenever the cam- camera's not on him and he's in that OTV studio, he's there like all closed up with his arms yeah. crossed. He's all he sort of so like happy. He's like curled them up in a little right. He had a massive falling out, didn't they? Yeah. After the England game on a. And- and, and I'm, I am absolutely 100% with Righty on that point as well, because Kino was saying like, oh yeah, you guys, you expected to win, you were all saying the football's coming home. And the point Righty was trying to make, he's like, no, nobody did think that. It was part of the fun. It was part of us enjoying doing well. We got to the semi-final for the third time in our existence. That was us celebrating doing that. It wasn't us being arrogant, saying that we were going to win the tournament. It was just celebrating getting to the semi-final, just as Wales celebrated getting to the semi-final of the European Championship two years ago. Of course they did. They have every right to do so. And that's all we were doing. But the trouble is, Roy Keane doesn't look at it from an English perspective. He looks at it from an external perspective. Well, yes, and I don't blame him for that because it must be quite annoying when you're you know obviously an, an irish an ex-irish player and a supporter and you, you your whole career because there's only money in english football is talking about english football it must be quite annoying yeah but he would have known that getting a job on the bbc wouldn't he to go to the world cup right he did upload a photo to twitter afterwards of him and keen obviously out on the lash afterwards like me and my mate it said uh, but the nice. look in keen's eyes he's still <laughs> thinking, I'm gonna fucking kill you I, but I, he must yeah he does know it and they do it in spite of it i think you know but it must it must be quite annoying i, I do wonder sometimes why they get the likes of, of roy keen and martin o'neill when they clearly don't really want to be there you know the thing that annoys me with itv pundits so the bbc like 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 them or not they're just kind of a, a, a sensible decent set of people who talk talk sort of reasonably and sensibly about the game itv seem to want to have a set of different characters as pundits and obviously keen's the one who's the miserable negative bastard gary neville's like the outspoken slightly controversial but knows what you know and they 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 sort of want to characterize everybody they can't just have knowledgeable football people and that's what annoys me most i think they also they also had definitely had a, a I don't know whether it was a directive or they just it just happened but there were there were quite a lot of debates and heated debates and arguments on there it was yeah. like um, like uh, Martin O'Neill basically giving any Aluko addressing down about, about <laughs> yes, the that handball ball rule yeah. like that. it's like and like and I mean he was like right kind of fine. he was right he was right in let's that be one. honest. Yeah. <laughs> It was but yeah. It, was like, it is interesting, God. and I thought the I thought the thing that I, that I really really liked about the BBC pundits was that the foreign players they got in had a general love of the sport and interest and some insight that they added to it. And although Slavon Bilic is is good entertainment, I also find him quite annoying with his general uh, sort of like lack of interest and his his demeanour. You know, whereas when you had Zabaleta and Fabregas and even Jurgen Klinsmann to an extent, they're obviously like really enjoying it and up for it, and, and kind of getting involved in the debate, uh, which was really, really good. And they also had a little bit of insight for those foreign teams that we don't see very often, especially Sesk. I thought he was very good. I thought Sesk Fabregas was absolutely brilliant. I, do you know what? I, I thought Zabaleta was great. I thought Didier Drogba was amazing as oh, well. Drogba's like, beautiful, bald, 
Yeah, we've never seen his lovely head like that before. It was fantastic. What a lovely shiny head he's got. <laughs> he really does. But they, they also seem to have Rhea Ferdinand's one of their favourites now, isn't he? I wonder whether he'll be a regular on Match of the Day now going forward. Because he's, he's excellent, I yeah, think. But I'm a big fan they obviously of like him because he was always on. He's a lovely chap as well, Rio, and he's been through it, hasn't he? He's been through the ringer, so it's nice to see. Uh, well, he, and he's done really well because back in his playing days, he had a reputation of just being a bit stupid, largely because of the way he looked, as, as, as well as anything else. But but he actually comes across very knowledgeable. He does have a bizarre lip situation, and what I find very amusing is that he and Lampard have a very similar strange lip situation. But I don't know any other correlation between the two of them apart from playing for England. I don't know if that's well, the, the, they're kind of talking out of one side of the mouth with like the top right lip kind <laughs> yes. of going. Yeah. yeah. Um, but that, that that just that just makes him more endearing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah like, exactly. But, but you're absolutely sure he's absolutely right though. Like um, Rio, like he just. I mean, maybe it's because he's played modern football more recently than a lot of the pundits. But but he speaks with more of an authority about how the game is played. He doesn't go into massive, he doesn't try to go into massive technical detail about anything, but he does a really good job of just kind of getting across what it's like to be a footballer playing this kind of football. And I just, I thought, yeah, I think he's excellent. But the balance balance works well, because you've also got Shearer and Lineker who just talk about scoring goals all the time. So having that defender who was was a really good defender anyway, but, but who comes across really, really well, Essentially on telly as well. I think it's a really good balance of while, pundits. While we're doing How a sort of impromptu uh, review of the pundit section, <laughs> this was not on the original uh, agenda, but we'll do it because I'm enjoying it. Uh, one player that I think, one player, they're not players, one pundit that I think has let themselves down during this tournament is, is Gary Neville. I think he's got sucked in to the ITV world and all of the good stuff that he did on Sky, like actual analysis of football, has gone out the window and now he's just saying things. The problem is just Gary Neville, things. he needs that big touchscreen Sky telly, he really he? does. So he can actually be analysing moves and yeah. that kind of thing. Because when, he's got, a, do that when a, he's got a state a opinion, he's rubbish. Well, I mean, like, the thing is, I, I've... I've barely watched a moment of him on Sky because I don't refuse to give any money to Rupert Murdoch and his football killing empire. Um, but but so so for me, actually watching Gary Neville very little experience of what he's like. Like he's a, he I I found him a breath of fresh air, to be honest with you. I thought I thought his his reading of a lot of the wider situation, particularly around England, was generally pretty good. Um he you're right, he didn't go into massive technical analysis or detail, but that is that is because ITV setup doesn't fucking let you. Well, that's you what get... I think the problem was. Him moving to ITV kind of precluded him doing what he's what he's good at, you know, which is a bit of a shame. But yeah, it's interesting to see having not really seen him very much because on Sky he's very much the analysis man. Having I having managed on ITV. I think he's just going straight back to Sky anyway. I think this was only a sort of oh, yeah, reboot yeah. for the World Cup. Um, yeah. But what, what annoys me on Sky, again, we, let's not do too much on pundits, but <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll make this point. What annoys me on Sky is, is so so I think he does Monday Night Football mainly, which is kind of an hour of, an, of analysing the weekend's games before the Monday game. And that is really good, because I say he's got a yeah. screen, he's drawing yeah. the lines and the circles, and he's breaking down moves. They partnered in with Carragher on, on Monday Night Football, who does the same. And I'm pretty sure they've just, They've mainly done it because of the Man United Liverpool rivalry. Yes. They want a bit of a spark. Um, I, I just don't think Carragher's very good at it, um, but no. they're, they're persevering with it because I think they like the rivalry. But but he's just no good. And I know it's not his fault, but but the accent, you know, he doesn't come across so well in when he's saying that's, things. 
that's be, that's because Sky Football is the root of all evil in in in, in the whole of the world in terms of football. So fuck fuck Sky. <laughs> and Sky do have Jeff Shreves, who is who's is is the worst um, reporter, whatever you want to call him, as well. You mentioned um, the Gabriel Clark earlier. I mean, Shreves oh God, is a million yeah. times. But let's not get on to you know. There's always been a history in sport of having those 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 pundits that go up against each other. And you know, there was the two famous Australian uh, cricket commentators. Well, one was Australian, uh, Ian Chappell, and one was South African, Tony Gregg. And they basically only ever put them on the air because they used to argue with each other. But it did make for excellent radio. And the the Carragher situation I thought was funny. But my favourite Jamie Carragher moment, apart from him spitting out the side of his Land Rover, was. Uh, that uh, Thierry Henry thing where they like announce that uh, <laughs> that Brendan Rodgers was leaving Liverpool and Henry grabs Carragher's knee like oh my god are you going to be alright Jamie <laughs> and then look on Jamie's face it was beautiful another human male has touched me what does this mean is <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm gay oh god I don't understand because my brain doesn't function properly oh poor old Henry was getting so emotional I, 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 I enjoyed Henry. Henry and talking about Thierry was a fantastic fucking segue uh, to the Belgium versus France game. We're finally there. That's 10 minutes of pundit analysis <laughs> done. Uh, we, we are on to the Belgium versus France match. And as I predicted, I just want to point that out on the WhatsApp. I fucking nailed the score, just so you, just so everyone's aware. Uh, France beat Belgium in a routine 1-0 victory, and Belgium looked quite poor, having uh, had uh, Roberto Martinez revert to his earlier bizarre 3-4-3 formation. Uh, Andy Roberts' thoughts. Well, I mean, I have I haven't watched enough actually of, of of Belgium's games to to sit down and put any like tactical analysis into it. Apart from the fact that that everything they did against Belgium was good, right? And when that and that sorry against Brazil rather was good. When when they reverted to 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 the back four, they put De Bruyne a bit further up the pitch, and then they had to in their previous game. Basically, they did everything that everybody had been saying for the rest of the tournament that they should have been doing. Um, yeah, it felt like Roberto Martinez read some newspapers, well. And then all of a sudden, they, 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 Martinez undid all of that good work. Whether he was trying to prove a point or what, I don't know. I don't think that's how he would work. But um, I, I, either way, um, I, think, I think Belgium just looked... They looked out of their depth, which they didn't look against Brazil. Against Brazil, they looked confident. They were playing wonderful, flowing football. They were they were bristling at every given available opportunity against what was a pretty organised and compact French side. Uh, they just looked like they struggled to kind of they struggled to get the best out of any of their players in that situation. Neil, do you think that it was probably down to France being a significantly better opponent? I think ultimately, yeah. I mean, Belgium pretty much as as we've said were massively disappointing in that game we we a couple of weeks ago we we mentioned they looked to be building really well during the tournament um and whether it was a formation whether it was individual players didn't form whatever the reason that they just sunk they just they, they just died against france um but france were were really good without having to do a lot i didn't think you know they they were well organized they were solid um they weren't all over belgium um, by any stretch, um, but equally they weren't really troubled either. Um, you know, and as you say, you you called it a one nil win in what might not be a very exciting game. 
is exactly what happened. But at this stage of a tournament, that's all you need. You know, you're not going to put three or four past people in the semi-final. This doesn't happen. So, yeah, um, France just just too good for them. France look good though, don't they? There's something about that setup and the the combination of a of a very powerful and dominating centre midfield with a very flamboyant and open wide midfield area that makes them a real threat, especially on the counter attack. And it looks like they're willing to give the opposition the ball. Because they almost said to Belgium, it's like, well, everyone's banging on about how good you are on the ball. Have the ball and we'll do you when you when you inevitably lose it to us, you know. And France have looked really good without anyone, bar probably Mbappe, actually shining individually. Well, Angolo Kante, you know, I think, has been a lot of players have just fantastic. settled into the system and done a, done really well. But no one's, no individuals have peaked, I wouldn't say, for France perhaps with the exception of Mbappe. I was thinking Golo Kante, I think he's had an incredible tournament so far. He's he's just everywhere. I mean, there was someone was joking about, you know, there's two N'Golo Kantes on every pitch that he plays, and it really does feel like that. I think the combination of him and Pogba, like giving Pogba the freedom that he doesn't have at Man United to go off and actually play some football because he knows he's got Kante there is a huge bonus to France. Barcelona are apparently interested in Kante as of this afternoon. Have you heard that? There you go, from the Midlands to fucking Catalonia. I think it's it's, um, it it goes back to what I think I was saying like uh, a couple of couple of pods ago about 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 France just being a, a unit and, and and actually they probably don't in, in one of the I think Jono pointed out one of the criticisms that Didier Deschamps has had prior to this tournament and probably even through this tournament from the French press is the fact that given that he was and I hate the phrase but he was given you know he's called their water carrier he's a kind of guy that did, that did all the kind of drudgery boring work is that that they do all of that stuff like under the radar as a unit really 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 well and they've got a couple of players you can just make a couple of things happen here and there. That's not to say they're kind of a boring defensive unit or anything like that, but they just they're just very workmanlike in their in the in their kind of their, their generic kind of play where they don't have the ball in particular. Mm. They 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 know exactly how to process the opposition, to to deaden the impact of the opposition, and to win the ball back at the moment, the best available available opportunity to make the most of those players like Mbappe and Griezmann yeah. that they can actually make something happen. They've um, they've also so, so they they look like a really dangerous not not a very exciting football team but a really fucking dangerous team to play against they've right? got a lovely lovely player at the back in Varane and I never really appreciate appreciated him as much as I have in this World Cup because because he plays for Real Madrid I have a built-in responsibility <laughs> to hate him uh, but when he's in a French shirt what a player I mean, any number of instances in that Belgium game, he was shutting things down, uh, getting involved with uh, with Lukaku when he needed to, but just reading the play and cutting out problems before they before they exist. And you know, every so often you get just a centre back that looks kind of very elegant, you know. And Varane is exactly that. I thought he was wonderful against Belgium. Well, what France are very good at as well, and it, it reminds me a little bit of Spain back in 2010. Um, they're very good at sort of the interplay, and it, it's you know it's probably the midfielders, as you say, they've got a strong midfield, but without anyone doing anything particularly spectacular, just you know the little triangles, the one-twos, just just to make space, and then something then gets created on the back of that. They're really good at that, just sort of working the ball well to open up the chances. Yeah, I, I found yeah, myself you're creating quite... little chances basically out of nothing as well. When you think, oh, they're just they're just going to move the ball around in midfield again, and again, just making tiny little chances, unexpected. That, that wrong foots the defences, which I think they're, they're really good at. 
I found myself quite heavily supporting France in that game because it, it sort of dawned on me as everyone had been gushing about Belgium that, that I was like, you don't deserve this. You don't deserve this, Belgium. You haven't been through the years of pain and frustration that it takes to get yourselves, you know, to a semi-final of a World Cup. So I'm not having you breeze your way straight through to the final just like that. So I think I was very happy that Belgium will have to go back and reflect and have a have a root to branch with review of their footballing with, system. With, with, with Belgium, and I think they, they, they see like old England teams in that setup. When I, and I guess that's what you were hoping for and pining for there. So Absolutely. Was the, was the idea that, that they are just going to be, be an England side. And this is what England have done in, in other tournaments, like over the, over the golden generation, so to speak, is that we have been a collection of talented individuals. And that's really all we were. So that's really all Belgium have been. They, and occasionally, when you've got a collection of talented individuals, they all fire together. And that's what happened against Brazil, for example. They all fired together. It happened in the last like 20 minutes in the Japan game. They all fired together. But, but other than that, it doesn't always happen, you know? Yeah. That beep was sadly Neil having to having to disappear on an emergency. So, so we'll say goodbye to Neil. Uh, he's gone. Oh, that's sad. <laughs> that's that's the problem when you have to do these things remotely. That's what was, yeah. Real life. When you're having to do things remotely when somebody's like a freshly born child in their I house. Know. The future, England's future left wing there. Uh, yeah. So, so yeah, I, I really, I really thought France did a did a fantastic job. What, what would France do for a Romelu Lukaku? Oh my goodness! That, yeah, that, although that do you know what? He's very, he's a type of player, isn't he? In in in. It's not. It's not that the team has to be built around him in any shape or form, um, but he he plays a very specific kind of game, and that's why that's why he that's why he fits in really well in a Jose Mourinho team. You know, when yeah. you've got like a big kind of big. I don't want to say dumb centre forward because he's not dumb, but a big kind of lug centre forward who's got the was, pace to kind of muscle people off the ball. Where was um, that performance against Brazil? Because it just came out of no, he was wonderful against Brazil, and then was, against France he was almost anonymous, you know. And then it was it was it was all of the criticisms about how he played how he played whilst he was at Everton. Yeah. That kind of almost like that kind of things will automatically happen for me because I'm better than all these players kind of attitude. And I'm not saying it is an attitude problem necessarily, but it's just, there was like, I, th- I think he just had the space against, against probably defenders who weren't used to being bullied against Brazil. Whereas, whereas against France, like they were set up beautifully for, they knew that they knew the dangers, they knew the risks. And, and I don't know. I think one of the problems as well with Lukaku is that he has been inconsistent uh, through his career. I know he's had he's had he scored well in the Premier League, regardless yeah. of which team he's been at. But he hasn't fired every single week. And and in tournament football, that's kind of what you need. You need the players who are able to be consistent. Um, well, I think we're gonna we we will see some players that have been very consistent playing uh, in the final on Sunday. And we're gonna take a little break, and then we're gonna have a little chat about the World Cup. Final. He questioned my loyalty, and um, I told him where to go. And one of my big regrets, really, I probably should have ripped his head off. But excellent coach. <laughs> excellent coach. Thanks, Roy. Uh, <laughs> um, maybe, maybe I should make all the things like silly things pundits say for the new season. Yeah, I, I quite like that. Um, <laughs> good, particularly if they're like angry pundits. <laughs> well, we get some like, soonest. Kind of grudge they want to get. They want to air. 
yeah, we'll definitely have to get some Suness on there. Um, yeah, so uh, before we get right into the final, there is one more game, and England have actually not come home yet from Russia because they have to play Belgium again in the third place playoff, a dead rubber again. So will we see the same uh, situation where Martinez and Southgate roll out uh, the B teams? Well, I, apparently uh, Southgate is said that no, we're not going to make like wholesale changes. He said obviously we're going to give some people a run out, but 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 Southgate's made a very clear point. They actually want to go and win this game, um, which is which is nice to hear. But at the same time, I mean, I didn't actually see this, but Shiz was uh, telling me that the um, the pre-match kind of press conference included, included John Stones, and he, he at one point during that press conference said, "Yeah, now we've got to go out and play the most pointless game in world football." <laughs> <laughs> well, he's not wrong. He is not wrong. I find it very strange that we still have the third place. We um and I was I was having a chat uh with my girlfriend about this in, in like his we 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 were we were debating or kind of like posturizing whether or not the players actually want to be involved in it or not. Now John Stone's fair enough. He's played in every game that we've played apart yeah. from the, no he played in the Belgium game as well, didn't yeah, he? So yeah, yeah, he's, he's the one. Played played every every game. Game. He's played every game. He's played every minute, I think, of every it. game. Yeah. Yeah. So he um. So it's easy for him to say it's pointless, whether or not, like, um, I'm trying to just... I'm sure Phil Jones Jones, and and Alexander-Arnold would love a run out. Yeah, Yeah. so I I think, think, um, but at the same time, it is is kind of interesting to hear that point of view and just that... The players do see these things in the same way, do they? We do. They will have been, I mean, they were as, as heartbroken, if not 10 times as heartbroken as we all were when when they lost yeah. um and at that point after all they've been through all the effort and energy and everything they'd put in they probably just wanted to go home and see their families I'm sure you know and and just kind of get it but but just have to stick around for an extra four days or five days or whatever it is um yeah, i think that, what that, is, that must make it difficult what is quite um, nice though is that well, in this situation it gives them the opportunity to prepare themselves for the future after what after what happened and actually i'm sure that southgate and his team knowing what they've been like will actually be doing a really good job of of putting everything into context for these players so that when they come home and face the media and face all that stuff that they're not you know that it isn't too raw and 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 nasty because if you do lose and you get on a plane and come straight back i should imagine that it's quite lonely and quite hard to take you know whereas they're all still together so they can feel that grief in in a group and maybe get over it a little bit better yeah, that's that's probably that's a very good point, and yeah, and, and you're right. And by, by the time this game, I mean they're, they're still not going to be happy, but I'm sure a lot of that kind of like that that kind of that low feeling might have subsided. And they thought, well, do you know what, guys? Let's go out there. Exactly, let's yeah. enjoy this afternoon as a team. Let's go out there and do it together and enjoy it as a team. And I'm sure that's going to they'll be going through their minds. Um, I guess one person who wouldn't necessarily be over happy about it, or maybe he will, I don't know. And that's Harry Kane, because obviously he's leading the Golden Boot nominations at the moment. Um, it gives Lukaku an opportunity yeah. to, to bang in a couple of goals and at least equalise him or bang in a hat-trick and overtake him. Um, but but at the same time, there are a couple of guys who are in the final who, let's say, say a, a, a final hat-trick from Mbappe, for oof, example, oof. would put him on level, level terms with Harry Kane. Yeah as well so there are a couple of guys in the final who if they have a fucking incredible final 
might uh, get up there with him. But more than anything else, I think it provides an opportunity for Lukaku. I was looking at this list, actually, of the players who are uh, on the golden boots. So Harry Kane's there with six goals. And uh, then the nearest two people are Shershev um, for Russia with four goals. Lukaku for Belgium, obviously, four goals. And then some guy from Portugal called Dos Santos Avero with four goals. I'm like, who the hell's this guy? Have I missed this? It's like a defender who's kind of snuck a couple of goals in here and there. Who I... But obviously not. It's just Ronaldo. No, you're, ta- you're talking about Juventus midfielder Cristiano Ronaldo. Yeah, do you know it's like within 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 hours of them announcing what his signing, they had um, shirts on sale in the shop. Like <laughs> like like that that was such a choreographed yeah. and kind of arranged thing. Is like it just demonstrates exactly why you spend a hundred million pounds on a thirty-two year old player. Yeah, right? yeah, very much so. I mean, although what really did uh, make me uh, chuckle was the reaction of the uh, Fiat factory workers who basically went on strike because Juventus bought Cristiano Ronaldo. And you think, what the fuck is... Why? Like, what's the connection? Well, of course, uh, the uh, what they call the Allegri family or whatever who own Juventus also own Fiat. And uh, the workers are going through a massive series of layoffs and things. They were like, hold on a minute. Why not use some of that money to keep us in our jobs, you bastards? But no, yeah. you, you've got Cristiano it's, it's, Ronaldo. That's a whole fucking kettle of fish. It really there, is. It's like amazing. A, whole, like, a bag, bag of worms. So what's the phrase? A can of worms to open there. Um, I wouldn't want to talk about it without knowing much about it. <laughs> I, but I did same, enjoy it though, just same, for Cristiano. At the same time, like you, Juventus will make all of that money back. Of course, right? so yes, whether, whether of or not course. that money will come back out to them and into the Fiat, fiat pop, uh, workers' pockets. I doubt it, but there you go. No, but I did enjoy Ronaldo probably probably before he even stepped foot in Italy creating enemies. So I enjoyed <laughs> that. Uh, so hopefully there'll be some Ronaldo out banners at the uh, at the opening game. It's not the uh, Stadio dell'Alpi anymore, is it? I've forgotten what it's called. I have absolutely no idea. I used to love it, but it was apparently the worst stadium ever and nobody went because it was in the mountains and really cold. That's what James Richardson told me. That, so that, that sounds like the Kassam Stadium to me. <laughs> so let us talk about a game that will be contested on Sunday, and that is the 2018 FIFA World Cup final between France and Croatia. Now, I think France will go into this as overwhelming favourites, maybe heavier favourites uh, in a World Cup final than we've seen for quite some time. Uh, what do you think? Do you think Croatia are going to be able to uh, pull something out of the bag? Look, I think the the quality that Croatia have got, the experience that they've got, I think they've. I I, I do think the ability to do it We're, without wanting to also um, kind of re-emphasize what Luka Modric was complaining about previously. They have also had to play every single one of their knockout games to 120 minutes. Um, So that's not going to work in their favor in terms of their fitness. But at the same time, it's the World Cup final. And I think you speak to any, any footballer, once you're out there on the pitch and you're in like a really, really big game, especially if things are going your way, that tiredness evaporates. It's maybe towards the back end of the game where it might start to make a bit of a difference. But, so I don't think that's necessarily an issue for them. I think they've got the talent and the experience on the on the big the biggest possible stages in European club football. Um, I I, th- I think Croatia have definitely got the personnel to make a make a good go of it. Yeah, um, I think there was a moment I, in the game. I don't, I don't think it's going to be a one way street in any way, shape, or form. But I also think France are going to probably end up winning it quite comfortably. There was a moment in the game against England, probably around the seventieth minute after they'd got their equaliser, but before we went into extra time, that 
you saw how good Croatia were. There, there was a period of about 10 minutes where you saw the quality of that midfield as they were able to pass the ball at will around the tiring England team. And uh, the, the combination of uh, Brozovic, Rakitic, Modric, Rebic and Perisic was very, very impressive. And I think against any team, that's going to be a dangerous, a dangerous combination. But like you said, France have done that once already against Belgium who had maybe arguably a better collection of midfield players passing the ball around. And they found, you know, Deschamps found a uh, a method uh, to beat them. And it is interesting because in France, uh, Deschamps still gets a load of stick for playing this very pragmatic and sort of uh, tactical style of football. And he still gets a load of stick about it now. And although although the French are going crazy, apparently there is a sort of undercurrent of people going, oh, this is a bit annoying because we've been slagging off Deschamps for this for the last four years. And here we go, you know, with, with this World Cup final coming up. So it'll be interesting to see if France managed to win this World Cup sort of against their own, uh, against their own will almost. Well, and, and, and that would be good if they did because I, I am sort of, all myself and it's it's almost the purpose of, of us doing a podcast like this but i'm sick of like armchair experts or even <laughs> like even not armchair experts fucking newspaper experts who think they know better like some people who all they do is they've been to a lot of football matches and they know how to write a couple of fucking sentences like henry winter right yeah. like like the, these people do they, they 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 are not fit to lace the boots of people who have been out there and played fucking football, right? And so as much as Didier Deschamps and like so the French versions of Henry Winter might be deriding him for the style of football they're playing. That guy's a fucking World Cup winner. Exactly. Like how dare they? Yeah, how dare exactly. they have a go? Okay, it might not be the most flamboyant or exciting game of football, um, and it may not even be playing to the strengths of the players that they've got in the best possible way. But they're getting the they job still- done. He's what? Sorry, they're getting the job done. Well, they're getting the job done exactly. So, um, I mean, I think I think the di- the difference between uh, Croatia and France is going to be the attacking players. Um, I, weirdly, I, we haven't seen anywhere near the best out of uh, Griezmann in this no. tournament. I don't think, but he has also been you know solidly like nailing it on penalty duty when he's been called into action um i, I really enjoyed um dejan Lovren saying that he's like one of the best defenders in the world because that is absolutely right yeah. for him being <laughs> planted on yeah. his backside by mbappe oh, at some dear. point in that game on sunday i could see um, it happening so i think I, I think those and like you know and and Okay, granted, he, he he scored against us, but Man- Mandzukic has not done a great job. I don't think for Croatia. I think he's underperformed this tournament. So, so I think that will be probably the difference. I think they're both they're both both very tactically astute mid- midfield wise. They're both fairly tight defensively. Um, I think France have got the edge on them. Right, the then give me a prediction. Third. Give me a prediction. Uh, it's going to be a two 0 to France. Right, I'm going to go for three uh, one France. Modric to get himself another goal uh, to cement him as the sort of top performing midfielder of the tournament. Mbappe to get two after Harry Kane gets one on the Saturday, leaving Harry Kane with a golden boot. So there we have that. I'd be very happy with that. What we're going to do, we're going to take a a little break now and then we're going to come back and talk a little bit about the future. Thanks a lot, boys. I feel much better now. Right, well, as the World Cup draws to an end, fear not, the podcast does not, because although we're going to be taking a little break now, because unfortunately I've got to uh, I've got to fly around the world for the next 10 days, 
so we won't be doing a post World Cup final podcast until maybe the 26th or something of July. So you're going to have to survive without us for that length of time. But we will do a, a, a pod after the World Cup and we will do a bumper one where we round up all of our thoughts and some of the best and funniest bits uh, from the tournament. And then after that, moving into the domestic season, we're going to keep things going and we're going to talk a little bit about the Football League, Andy. Yeah, we are. So, um, you know, on, on- Pod. We've got we've got Oxford United supporters. We've got Reading supporters. Uh, we've uh, we've got Liverpool supporters as well. But you know we can, yeah. we, we we can't all be perfect. <laughs> um, but we're, we yeah we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna keep an eye on football uh, league as best as we possibly can. I think it's very much going to be it's like it's likely to be mostly focused on the Championship and League One because that's what we know the most about. Yeah. Um, because Cy being a Reading season ticket holder and me being an Oxford United season ticket holder but we will be keeping a, a, an eye on everything and we'll do everything we can to talk widely more widely about the uh, the rest of the divisions and keep an eye on League 2 as well and I think there's I think we, we, there's a bit of a dearth I think of, 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 of content for the Football League there are a couple of podcasts knocking around but, but nobody is anywhere near as entertaining as us right? Exactly I don't think anyone else will be hosting a sort of Thames Valley Rivals podcast uh, with Reading and Oxford going going toe to toe, so we might have a unique USP there. I think you know. Yeah, if we if we can if we can rope some Swindon fans <laughs> to come. Uh, yeah. I mean, admittedly, we'd have to explain the technology to them a little bit. But <laughs> yeah, if so. we can manage that, then I think it will be it'll be worthwhile and it'll be entertaining. I think uh, one thing that I'm really looking forward to is is Reading drawing Oxford in some kind of cup tournament somewhere in the season. I think that would be pretty special. Uh, yes, it would. Um, I, either that, or just Reading getting relegated season. So <laughs> can, I say play you next season. We're going to be you know the following season. We'll, we'll probably go up. So ah, there just, you go, uh, crisscross. I, I'm, I'm going to be honest with you. Actually, already a little bit of content for you, <laughs> just by going what's happened over the summer so far. I'm not expecting Oxford to go up this season. <laughs> no, I think Reading have suffered from a similarly uh, depressing uh, transfer window, but it's not over yet. It is not over yet. But what is incredible is that in three weeks' time, on the third of August, I think Reading kicks off the uh, the uh, football league on Friday, the third of August, with a Friday night uh, game against uh, Frank. Lampard's Derby County, and this is one of the problems. And I love that the fact that the <laughs> county are now officially they've even changed the badge. Right, yeah. it now says Frank Lampard's Derby <laughs> County. Like, um, the, but like the uh, gotta carry that around the, with them all the over reason, England now. That's the only reason you're the opening game, isn't it? Is yes, because absolutely. you just happen to get drawn against Frank Lampard's Derby yeah. County. It's a nice um, little thing. I love how football throws up those little stories, though, because it does mean that you get the kick off. You know, the first game of the season, you always want to see your new team, but there's also something going on in the match, so it's quite interesting. Yeah, it is good. I mean, and, and, and there's there, there are a lot of stories to tell um, in 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 League One, League Two, in the Championship uh, as well. Kind of. Uh, Coventry City, for example, having a quick look down at League Two. Coventry City having stabilised after their fucking massive bombing down. It's going to be interesting to see how or how they manage to do something out of that. We've just um, picked up their, uh, their striker Mark McNulty, one. so they'll be they'll be without him. What's that? I missed that. Sorry. Uh, we've just picked up their striker Mark McNulty, Sparky McNulty. So ah. he's coming to uh, the Thames Valley. So Coventry might struggle without their without their main man. Yeah, that's going to be a blow for them. Um, but yeah, um, Sunderland 
one and being bought out by a former Oxford United kind of investor and stuff like that. Lots of stories to be told, I think, in the um, in, in, in the Football League in the coming season. So it's going to be good fun. Excellent. Right. Well, there is one more story to be told over in Russia, and that's going to be unfolding on Saturday afternoon. So I hope you all enjoy the World Cup final. I'm sure that you will. And uh, I'm hoping that after the World Cup, you'll come back and join us. So uh, it's time for that moment to say goodbye, Andy. Cheerio, everyone. Please find us on WorldyPod at Twitter, WorldyPod on Instagram, email us at WorldyPod at gmail.com, find us on Spotify, TuneIn Radio, and all those other places. And we'll see you next time on Worldy. I saw Pirlo do that chip against Joe Hart the other day. Absolute filth. <laughs>